Hi, I'm Sess Busby. Welcome to First Act, the podcast series brought to you by Koshi's Business Builders, where we chat to inspiring innovators across the startup and small business ecosystem. If you're looking for small business inspiration, you can find us at www.koshisbusinessbuilders.com.au or join us on Facebook. Hi, everybody. Today I'm chatting with Lisa Messenger. Lisa's the founder of The Messenger Group, a serial entrepreneur and a publisher of one of my favourite magazines, The Collective. She's also one of the honorees on our inaugural Koshi's Business Builders Power List. Welcome, Lisa. Now, what I wanted to firstly have a chat with you about is The Collective. I mean, you entered into print at a time when digital was really starting to hit its strife and everybody was saying print is dead. So I guess... My question is, why then? So I decided, really it was as simple as this. I'd been surrounded by extraordinary entrepreneurs and thought leaders and amazing individuals and businesses for such a long time. But in the media at the time, I felt there was a gap in the market. There wasn't anything that was kind of like the story behind the story. And I kept scratching my head and kind of going, but why, but why, but how, but how, how did they start? How did they get funded? What was the supply chain? How did they find a factory? And so, you know, because we so often just read about the glossy end product and how fabulous and easy it was. And I really wanted to debunk that and reverse engineer it. And so that was really as simple as it was. And the reason I didn't launch digitally at the time, to be honest, is um, I knew nothing about print, but I knew even less about digital. <laughs> so I was like, well, I feel like I could probably do a print magazine because I'd been, you know, writing and publishing um, custom published books for quite a few years, yeah. which are very one dimensional as it turns out compared to a print magazine. But yeah, that's where I started. And uh, it was a, a crazy, crazy journey. Yeah. So what was it like plotting out that first issue then? Hard. <laughs> Really hard, you know, and it's interesting and we can cut forward to this if you want to shortly because I've just, I'm just entering another industry very purposefully that I know absolutely nothing about again. So I'm right back in that startup iteration and I'll talk about why I'm doing that. But um, when I look back, you know, you don't know what you don't know, which can be a blessing and also really tough. So I'd had 11 years prior to launching of having my own businesses. So I had a bit of business acumen behind me, which was a great grounding, but I knew nothing about magazines. So I literally bought a book on how to start a magazine. <laughs> literally Googling. Googling is a great friend when you're starting out how to start a magazine. And I'd buy other magazines and read what I later learned was the imprint page, which is where it lists out, you know, you need an editor and a deputy editor and a blah, 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 you know. And so I would look at other magazines and go, oh, maybe I need one of those. <laughs> and so really I was learning on the fly. But um, so I, I literally was just kind of like very um, intuitive and just what's the next logical and lateral step. So I'd be like, well, if I wanted to do an article on someone, well, I guess I need a writer. I guess I need a subject. <laughs> if I want a distributor, oh, well, I see magazines in Coles and Woolworths and Newslink and news agencies. So I just really started looking and asking and then Googling and, you know, just stepping through it. Now, that was naive and a bit clunky, but it was also bloody brilliant because the naivety part plays into a highly saturated industry in your favor because you don't know the word no. You don't know the rules so you can just break them freely. 
And a couple of examples would be, um, you know, essentially Collective Hub was a business magazine, but I made it look like a fashion and design magazine quite mm. purposefully so that people would pick it up thinking that they knew what they were getting. It would go into a, a much broader mass market. People would pick it up and go, oh, actually, this is really cool and, you know, I can learn a lot for one. For two, things like Coles and Woolworths that I just talked about, um, I literally just picked up the phone and was like, who do I speak to about getting the magazine into Coles and Woolworths? And as it turns out, that's quite a long, laborious process about having range reviews, which only happen every six months. And in the case of Coles, they said to me, when I finally got a meeting, oh, we won't be looking at putting any new magazines in for another two years. And at that point, I said something absolutely ridiculous. And I said, I will guarantee you profit. Take that to your boss, see what they say and come back to me. And the guy was like, I've never heard anything so ridiculous in my life. Okay. You're clearly (laughs) backing yourself. And so naivety was great because I later spoke to actual publishers and actual editors who'd been doing it for years and so many of them said what no you don't get ranged in Coles or Woolworths until you've been you know in print for at least seven years now if I heard that you know up front it may have precluded me from even picking up the phone so I think never underestimate a highly saturated market it means there's opportunity there and never underestimate not having been there before because I think you can you know really challenge the status quo and do things differently but you know you need to have a bit of um, business acumen a couple of runs on the board before you do something as kind of big and crazy as what I embarked upon. (laughs) (laughs) So you know 50 something issues later you Mm. made the decision that you finally had to pull the plug to break it all yes (laughs) that must have been absolutely heartbreaking yeah I mean so when we sat down before the interview you said have you read risk and resilience or yeah Yeah. okay sorry so as you know then I've written now seven books in the last five and a half years because I made it my my mission I guess if I was going to tell other people's stories and the story behind the story and keep it real and raw and relatable and attainable, then I felt like it was my mission and my duty to actually write in real time books that, you know, um, kind of the blueprint for the entire Collective Hub journey and everything that's been before and will come since. And so the sixth book in the series, unfortunately, was Risk and Resilience, which I thought, I always come up with the title first. And (laughs) I came up with the title in October 2000. 16, I think it was. And the business was sort of three and a half, nearly four years into um, its um, that iteration at the time. And I started, it, we'd had immense scale, like grown way too quickly mm-hmm. without the systems and processes. So about, I think it was October 2016, I suddenly thought, this isn't looking good. The brand is huge, but the bottom line is not keeping up and I'm in mm-hmm. trouble. So I thought, right, I'm going to write a book to, you know, this one's going to be called Risk and Resilience, Risk and Resilience, and it's going to be how I dig myself out of this catastrophe. Yeah. Well, it turns out 150,000 or so words in, the catastrophe was getting more and more insurmountable. And so I charted that entire journey. So it came back to about 35,000 words, I think. Um, and we can dig into why bigger isn't necessarily better and mm-hmm. why, um, yeah, a whole lot of things and a whole lot of incredible lessons that I learned through that 
journey if you want. Do you yeah, want to I there? would definitely <laughs> like to hear more about that, especially for our audience, learning from that kind of resilience that you had to have to, to make it through to the other side. Yeah. Um, was, why I chose to bring yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. So um, I might just go back a little bit. So it's really interesting because launching the business in 2001 initially, which was way before I came up with the idea for Collective Hub. And for the first 11 years, I couldn't work out how to scale. I never had more than three staff. Um, I had very profitable businesses, mainly doing kind of um, branding and marketing and some custom publishing of books. Um, but I was comfortable and I was bored. So making good money, but comfortable and bored, not a great place to be. Launched Collective Hub suddenly stepped massively into my purpose and the greatest possibility of my vision I had ever anticipated. Mm. But you don't know what you don't know. So what happened was within two years, I had 32 full-time staff. I had over $3 million in fixed salaries. I had a 600 square meter office that was costing me nearly 300 grand a year. Mm. I spent... 150 grand plus on the fit out. Um, And those 32 full-time staff were, interestingly enough, primarily being a global media brand at that stage, only three of them were writers. So I had a lot of people doing a lot of stuff and it was a very um, fat business in terms of I had a hefty cost structure and I hadn't put with that high growth the systems and processes in place. And so there were a lot of people managing people who were managing people who were yeah. managing people. And I worked out quite quickly that it was a grossly inefficient business. Oh, and So crippling financially. Yeah, so crippling. But I am the only person to blame for that because um, my boyfriend said to me as I went into it, as I was, you know, crying unceremoniously on the bathroom floor one night, as so many founders do, <laughs> um, he said, but you chose this and I'm very conscious with my languaging and I said I chose to start a business that I thought would become really big and really global and really have an impact on a lot of people and that's great. But as I stepped truly into that vision and that purpose, what came was like this hugely operationally focused business which needed lots of systems and processes and because I'd never been there as a CEO, I didn't know what I didn't know and I didn't surround myself with the right people and so um yeah and and it was fun and it was crazy and it was wild and we were you know we grew across print and digital and events I mean we were often running up to four events a week you know we had a print magazine in 37 markets we had a big digital footprint but I hadn't set it up correctly. So we were hemorrhaging cash and, you know, that wasn't a fun place to be. I remember when I started my business every, and people will be able to relate to this wherever they are. It's, it's all, um, you know, dependent on our own journeys. But I remember when I started, everything was in increments of $100 and suddenly everything, I mean, everything was in increments of $100,000. And every day, oh my God, my CFO, my chief financial officer would say to me every day, we need to find another $100,000. And so I hated it because I'm a creative and a visionary and I'm great at kind of inventing things that don't even yet exist and I love moving forward and, you know, I'm I'm in my genius zone and I'm bloody brilliant at it. But I am horrible really at detail and operations and IT and HR and legal and finance. Mm. I do it 
but it's not my sweet spot. And suddenly I was just drowning and felt like I was in survival mode all the time because the business became so dependent on cash flow and me having to really be in that. And I talk about it like when you're loving something and it's moving forward and you're creating, it feels like I'm in flow. And suddenly I felt like every day I was hemorrhaging cash and I felt like I was in mud and it was hard. And so, yeah, so after about 18 months of that, I just had this overwhelming feeling that my purpose hasn't changed one bit, not from 2013 until the day I sit here with you and I don't think it ever will. And that is about igniting human potential and for me personally to be an entrepreneur for entrepreneurs, living my life out loud, showing that anything's possible. But I knew that I couldn't continue to do that whilst the business was so inefficient. So all I could think of was I need to cut the guts out of this business. I need to slash the cost base, which unfortunately meant, you know, some redundancies and some really, really, really hard gut-wrenching decisions. Mm -hmm. And in nearly 17 years of business to that point, I'd never made a single person redundant. And suddenly I was faced with, well, if I want this business to survive and I want to continue to iterate in some form, then I need to make these tough decisions. And so, um, yeah, so I cut the guts out of it. And that meant um, letting a lot of people go, giving people the freedom to then work from wherever they wanted to, but as freelancers or contractors, it meant actually inevitably closing the office, which I made actually as a very conscious decision um, because I now believe um, there's a better way of working, a smarter way of working, a more flexible way of working. And, um, yeah, so it was painful, but I was like, sometimes you've got to break a brand in order to remake it, which Mm. was the subtitle of Risk and Resilience. Mm. So. I feel like over the last year I've been remaking it in a much stronger, much more Mm. sustainable way and I'm super, super excited about the future. Yeah. And speaking of remaking, like you did bring the mag back and there was some criticism. There was like flack people going, oh, publicity stunt. Like I just feel like. (laughs) Like a fucking, excuse my publicity stunt. Yeah, so. So that's interesting because um, I've been very fortunate. Lucky there's some wood in front of us. I'm touching that. I've been very fortunate. I think that, you know, the media and people in general have been extraordinarily kind and supportive over the years. And it was unbelievably unfortunate that I was asked to speak at a conference, which shall remain, <laughs> we will not mention. Um, Voldemort. Yeah. Just think of it as Voldemort. Yeah, about maybe six months after I decided to close the magazine. And honestly, I literally spent before that decision just so much time crying, you know, like um, not, you know, it was that juxtaposition or that duality of like just falling in a heap at the end of the day, but then fronting up and having to be a really strong, resilient leader every single day for such a long time. And I finally made the courageous decision to close the print magazine because it wasn't sustainable, but I wrote in my editor's letter and I also made a video and, you know, a lot of supporting documentation around it across social media explaining my decision but also leaving the door open saying if I could at all find a sustainable way to bring Mm. it back or bring an issue back when I could, then I would do that. And, um, And when I closed it and then, you know, had time and space to cut the guts out of the business, I actually realized that, you know, it wasn't actually the print magazine that was 
you know, costing us so much money. It was just the inefficiencies. A lot of it, to be honest, was around digital because I didn't know enough about it at the time. Again, my fault. And so, and also we had an entire issue, which was issue 53 of content that we'd already paid for, commissioned and designed. And so this whole magazine was sitting there. So I said, let's bring it, like we can do it. Let's bring it back. And we then announced to our community, we can bring one back and we may bring one or two back a year, but when we feel like it, you know, and not at the kind of schedule. <laughs> right. Unfortunately, one, um, one of the nasty media organisation decided to take me to task on that and I thought, gosh, isn't that unbelievable because shouldn't we be celebrating in an age of business when people can actually make um, really tough, courageous decisions to break something and then actually talk, which I did very candidly about how you can actually bring it back and how it was really all, you know, my fault and I'm the one. And this is how I did it. Anyway, yes. And then this person said, oh, is it a publicity start? And I was like, are you serious? (laughs) Like you say, many other ways, easier ways um, to do a publicity stuff. Yeah. It's kind of like here, read Risk and Resilience. It's pretty much (laughs) the whole journey. Yeah. Yeah. It just does strike me how amazingly resilient you are though as well. Like how do you maintain that? Thank you. Yeah, and and thank you. And it was funny because it was the 8th of April 2018 I walked away from my actual office and – and that's not that long ago. And on that anniversary, my boyfriend, I didn't even realize. And my boyfriend said to me, wow, you know, like it's pretty extraordinary that you just kind of got up and kept rolling the past year. And I was like, yeah, I guess so. I hadn't really thought about it. It's just what I do, you know. But um, it's not often until, you know, a third party or and that piece of external validation where he was like, well, you should reflect on that because a lot of people's identity would have been wrapped up completely in, Mm. you know, this big, sexy, ego kind of media empire and then having to kind of make decisions to break it all for a while. Um, And other people would have gone to ground and kind of gone, I'm a failure and this is a disaster. And I don't know, I just, I feel like because I made a conscious decision in 2013 to like, live my life out loud and kind of be a conduit for the good, the bad, the ugly. And I was like, well, I'm just going to tell people how it is. And so what I would say about that is it's interesting because the things that we're often most afraid of, um, when you speak them out loud and you authentically stay in your truth, then people are unbelievably supportive. And in being courageous enough to break collective in its former iteration, it gave so many other entrepreneurs and business leaders almost permission to do the same because they were almost like, oh, thank God, like Collective was outwardly such a successful brand, yet you've come out saying, well, actually it wasn't sustainable in its form. Thank you. You've helped us to go, oh, I'm going to break my own business. So um, I think resilience is a learned muscle though and it comes back to my purpose every day I go, why am I here? And because I'm very clear on the piece around being an entrepreneur for entrepreneurs, living my life out loud, showing that anything's possible. Essentially, that's the simple thing I remember every day. And as soon as I have a pity party and I'm like, oh, this is so tough, I don't want to do this anymore, I go, why am I here? Well, I'm going to live, you know, I'm going to be an entrepreneur for entrepreneurs, which basically means, you know, living through the hard stuff, learning it, um, sharing it in order Mm -hmm. to help other people. And so as soon as I remember that, I go, 
yeah, wow, it's um, a really freaking tough lesson and they come every day in mm. some form, form or another and then I reframe it and I go, well, great, thanks for the lesson. How can I share this and um, help other people, I guess? I think too many people feel isolated and like they're doing it alone and really mm. it doesn't matter um, what business you're in, what industry you're in, what vertical you're in, mm. what life you're living. Mm. We all have these parallels we all struggle with Mm. inadequacies lack of self-worth lack of confidence um cash flow issues yeah a myriad of other things and as soon as you talk about it and share with others I think it's quite cathartic and Mm. liberating so whilst me sharing may seem selfless it's actually quite selfish because I get it off my chair (laughs) and I can move on (laughs) Yeah. yeah And but, also life's too short, you know. I don't want to just sit around and be like, oh, poor me. Like yeah. I'm just going to, well, that one kind of didn't work out quite how I would have wanted. Well, what did I learn? How can I use that to do it better next time? Yeah. I think you are right, though, and I think it did open the door for a lot of people to actually go, yeah, I'm not doing as great as everyone thinks and to kind of express the learnings that they've found in their failures. You know, that's become very a, a very kind of, popular theme amongst entrepreneurs to kind of now be much more open about the mistakes that they've made and and how that's actually made them grow and become better in their entrepreneurship. So that's it. And history shows, I mean, you look at any um, great businesses now, you know, whether it be Airbnb or like a whole, like so many of them, if you actually go back, we see this you know, these amazing brands now. But if you go back through the founder's history, you'll often see that they had um, two, three, four attempts at startups or, you know, the brand was a completely um, different iteration of what it what we now see from a consumer interfacing perspective. And so then you kind of go, well, of course it makes sense because it's not until we push ourselves to our limits and then we go, wow, that was really unsustainable. I can't hire people on 250 grand and, you know, like yeah. crazy things. But I threw money at things, money that I didn't have, mind you, at things that um, I just thought other people were smarter than me and they would solve problems. But actually what I've learned is to be a good business leader, you kind of need to be the brand architect. You need to learn from the grassroots up, like the very basic fundamental workings of a business and then put the people in place who may be smarter than, well, hopefully are smarter than you, but you've got to have the understanding. And where I fell down was certainly around some of the digital aspects of the business. And I just, I just didn't have the knowledge. Mm. So, um, so since then I've been off to courses at like general assembly and other things like Uh learning the basics again. And I think the thing is never be too proud or to, you know, let ego overtake you. Like I think to continue to learn, keep learning um, at whatever base you need to just so you can be a really good leader is really, really important. Yeah, like there's nothing wrong with saying I don't know. And then, exactly. Then try, and and, and especially more than ever these days because especially with technology, I mean, it's moving at such a rapid pace, um, especially in the digital landscape. I mean, I've been educating myself around, you know, wireframing, you know, in case, you know, I do some kind of tech startup. I've been learning, you know, bits and pieces about coding and robotics and like all sorts of things, just getting a really base knowledge so that when I build out different parts of my next startups, at least I have some kind of um, understanding so that I can, when I'm engaging or employing people I can at least ask the right questions Mm. you know it's very 
hard to employ people um, or engage people if you don't have some kind of a base level understanding yourself. And I think that's definitely where I made some mistakes. Yeah. Mm. It was uh, Eleanor Roosevelt was that said, do something that you're afraid of every day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, 100%. I am. Um, I it's quite well known and documented now that, you know, most days I'll push myself out of my comfort zone in some way or be counterintuitive um, to what I would normally do. And that could be as simple as just going to another suburb and eating at a different cafe or just purposely kind of flicking the switch in my brain so that it's um, never gets comfortable and I'm always pushing myself a little bit or stretching my boundaries or belief systems and just always on the edge of something. Mm. I think it's very easy to fall into specific routines or specific ways of doing things. And yeah, that can be, you know, in your existing geographic location or some of the far-flung stuff I've done like sweat lodges in Costa Rica or (laughs) communes or borderline cults in India. (laughs) And, you know, those things are great because you take away learnings and you might be like, well, I'm never going there again, but how do I integrate that learning into my um, way of being in a westernised world Mm. and what can I learn from that? So, yeah, I'm always fascinated. I'm fascinated with psychology and just pushing things a little bit all the time. Yeah. Is there something to be said for routine though? Is there a purpose for routine? Ah, yes. So let's talk about that. So it's good to be, um, I think, purposely counterintuitive to keep pushing yourself and um, exploring the edge of you know innovation and that kind of thing however I think rituals and routines are absolutely paramount as well um I don't think I just contradicted myself one is like push yourself outside a little bit but there are other things where um for example I will never have a meeting pretty much unless I've got a speaking gig or something before 10 a.m in the morning so generally between 7 a.m and 10 a.m that is completely my time and that is like start the day with a green smoothie, do some meditation, Mm. do some yoga or go for a walk with my dog Benny, Um, listen to podcasts, read books, educate myself before I start doing anything with the external world. So there's things like that which are not negotiables for me and that's the only way that I can operate at the level that I do operate at. Mm. So I think um, and and that is interesting as well because I think a lot of people think, oh, you know, um, entrepreneurs or high-functioning business people, oh, they must just, every day must be different. And it is to a degree, but I think it's important to have certain rituals and routines mm. that you stick to. Well, there's also this um, kind of perception that it's you're always on as well, yeah. like as an entrepreneur, like yeah. there's never any downtime. It's yeah, like yeah. on the go, on the go, on the go. Yeah, exactly. And I think for years I was like that and now um, – I'm purposely almost not sometimes. Like when I'm on, I am on, but I sleep at least eight to ten hours every single night. Mm. So that's one reason I can, I'm never tired during, like never tired during the day. Yeah. I'm on. But there's also things like I love gardening. So if I get into overwhelm because when we're juggling multiple things as we all are, I might just be outside for five minutes in nature pruning a bush or something Mm. and it just is a way I know I can bring myself back Mm. down to earth quickly and defrag and land, ground myself, whatever words you (laughs) want to use, so that I can actually go on to the next thing and just like otherwise we glorify being busy, you know. Oh, my God, I'm so busy, I'm so busy, I'm so busy. And that's frenetic and um 
And I don't think that's a healthy place to be. Mm. And it's when you allow yourself some stillness, I think that's when the really good ideas come and you're able to breathe and then you're mm. able to move into the next thing. Yeah, I, I think there probably is not enough time given to inspiration these days. Oh, 100%. And that's why you've just absolutely nailed, nailed it because that's one of the reasons I realised, I mean, it's different now, but I used to say all the time, when I'm in the office, I'm busy. But when I'm out of the office, I'm productive. So, you know, and a lot of people listening will relate to that. You go into the office, you're in meetings, you're react. I always thought I was reacting. I'm reacting to people's needs and wants. I'm putting out fires. I'm reacting to emails. It was all very like <gasps> frenetic energy. Yeah. Yet when I would go traveling for speaking gigs or I'd, you know, on a plane, suddenly I'd write all these amazing stuff or all these strategies and visions or when I had time to sit in a hotel room and I realized as soon as I walked into an office it was just busy and frenetic and so even when I had the office I used to not I mean it took me years of training because you always feel guilty as the boss oh my god I've got to be there at eight before everyone around yeah. and you know you're always feeling guilty and I it took me a long time to finally get comfortable with saying guys, it's not that I'm not being productive when I'm not in the office, but I need this time to educate myself, to think about what's the next way of innovating, you know, what's the next piece of the vision, where are we going? And, um, yeah, so so I think that's really important. Yeah. So what is the next piece of the vision then? Ah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so at the moment, so this year, 2019, You'll see a lot of printed products, so about 10 different printed products coming out. And that's really, I mean, I still love print and I love um, physical products. Um, but underneath all of that, so I, I wrote and produced most of those with my team earlier in the year and we're just rolling them out. Um, but I'm working on a couple of startups. One of them is in the fashion sphere, which is, mm. trust me, the last thing I thought I would ever <laughs> say. <laughs> and... Um, People will be quite probably shocked and surprised when it comes out because it's not what you're thinking. Yeah. But um, because of how I've chosen to live my life um, and my purpose, as I've said, is resolute, I so many of our community have said, oh, but it's okay for you now. You know how to run a big business or, you know, you've got a big brand now. And so I've purposely chosen something actually ridiculous <laughs> because I wanted to prove once again that, you know, I think a good entrepreneur can traverse multiple industries. So mm. I entered print in 2013 knowing nothing about it, had success to some degree until I nearly lost it all. Okay. And so now I want to test it across a few other industries um, and purposely go, I know nothing, like nothing about mm. fashion, particularly the stream that I've chosen. Like it is ridiculous. And so I'm learning again. And mm. um but this time I'm actually filming um, the entire journey so that I can share with people everything from ideation to product yeah. development to finding a factory. And so it's very much still in line with the purpose of Collective Hub and my mission to kind of share everything behind the scenes. But longer term, I would love to actually um, – you know, have multiple businesses across multiple industries and document the entire journey and start investing in other people's businesses and just kind of share as much as possible about businesses and the behind the scenes and, yeah. So watch this space. <laughs> Is there anything that's off limits though? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
probably won't start a tobacco factory tomorrow. <laughs> Is that what you mean? Yeah. <laughs> There's no yeah. industry you. <laughs> no, but I mean, um, oh yeah, I mean it has to be something I'm, fa- I'm passionate about. I yeah. mean, Collective Hub uh, is you know, my greatest passion. It's probably something I will never, ever sell. The fashion one is kind of fun to test another industry. I'll probably, you know, sell it in three to five years because I've never actually done an exit either. So, you know, I always want to push myself and I don't really care about fashion for fashion's sake, but it's good in terms of creating content and helping people and having fun in another industry. Um, so, you know, I'll keep exploring, but mm. really it's all about just using myself as a conduit mm. to take people on a journey, I yeah. guess. Yeah, and hopefully not – I was going to say hopefully not fail too much along the way. I'm happy to fail. I just like to do it like in small iterative things. Incremental failure. Fail fast, fail often, don't do a monumental failure. Yeah. <laughs> not in a hurry for another one of those. <laughs> yeah. And that's all we've got time for. Thanks again for chatting, Lisa. That's it for First Act. And don't forget, if you're looking for small business inspiration and advice, head to koshisbusinessbuilders.com.au.